Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached the verdict? verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast, your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. What's up, everybody? Uh, welcome back to John and Jordan on Justice. Special day, we actually have John and Jordan here. It's kind of been crazy last couple weeks. Jordan was out of town. I did the solo, and then the last few weeks... I went on what should have been a shorter vacation, and then my family got struck with COVID. Um, I came out unscathed, but, you know, so we've been unable to get back. And But here we are. We're back. I'm back in, in studio. Jordan's back in town after a nice vacation with the wife, and, you know, we're here. School's starting. That's, that's the clear line of demarcation. So when school starts, you got to be back in the saddle and ready to go. So we're back at it. I'm excited to be back. And actually, just being back today kind of gave us the topic unexpectedly because we got a call um, this week, and then I spoke with them today from an attorney who wants to potentially refer us a case dealing with someone who died while in custody, meaning in a prison or jail, this instance in a prison. And that got John and I to talking and thinking, we've handled some of these cases throughout the years, and they don't get a lot of airplay, so to speak, because... Generally, the plaintiff's bar has an aversion to these cases, and there's some legitimate reasons why, but we don't. Um, we kind of get excited by them. We welcome them, and hopefully this opportunity works out. But we figured this is a really good opportunity to shed some light on a, <clears throat> on a niche area of personal injury practice that can be profitable for the attorneys that handle them if, if they do them correctly and can be really meaningful to the families of those who you know were injured or killed behind bars. And I think it's, you know, in many ways, and I'm not getting on my soapbox, but it's kind of like people go to jail or prison, they get forgotten about, not by their loved ones, but by society. And by virtue of that, some pretty horrific, you know, like the parade of horribles can take place behind bars, never really sees the light of day, doesn't get media coverage. And the next thing you know, some pretty inhumane things happening right in your backyard, so to speak, or right in your home jurisdiction. And, um, you know, when I became a lawyer, I wanted to help people. And this is a very meaningful way we can do that. Yeah. I uh, I agree. I got into, you know, Jordan had more doing civil rights kind of work before I did. Jordan did a lot of pro bono cases, excessive force, uh, things of that nature. We actually did one together um, when we first partnered up. And, you know, I, I think it's true that the hardest cases to win are civil rights cases. You know, they're the most challenging. And especially when you're dealing with somebody that's in a prison scenario, not just forgotten, people look down upon them, right? You committed a crime, you're in jail, something happened, and, and I'm supposed to feel sorry for you. And so you kind of have to overcome a lot of those issues, <clears throat> you know, when you handle these kind of cases. Excuse me, everyone. But I, I think to, to really understand it, we have to look at kind of what is the industrial prison complex to begin with. Because what people may not understand is that prison and the the human capital, meaning the the prisoners, it's 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 a monetary asset, right? For states, for governments, for private corporations, I mean, it is a money making scheme for private companies, you know. And and we've su sued a few of them. There used to be, um, uh, what was it, Core Civic? What was their former name? Corrections Corporations of America. There's G yeah, CCA, CCA yeah. that now is Core Civic. I think they are still the largest 
in the country, even though they go by Core Civic now. But yeah, that's that's a private corporation, meaning for profit driven, that will take over and operate local jail or even statewide or even federal like ICE immigration facilities. Sometimes they'll get contracted out to manage and run that facility. It's not the actual local sheriff, local uh, police department. Uh, and you got to think about it. at the end of the day. What's in the interest of those corporations? We're going to talk about that more, but it's to have more people to watch because the more people that they have to watch, the more money they'll get paid through government subsidies and the like. So there's definitely a very clear, uh, beyond just obvious, arguably perverted um, incentive structure for a lot of these private corporations. But not every jail or prison is, is managed that way. Sometimes, you know, so if we're going to use the example of, okay, a private company contracts out with uh, a local municipality to run their whole local jail. Okay, that's that's a pretty comprehensive system that's in place. And we could talk about that. We've had some cases against a vendor like that. But then it doesn't always have to be like that. Sometimes maybe the sheriff runs the jail 95% of the way, but they contract out just the, the medical services. And then there's a series of private vendors that will come in and do just that limited component. But in just that limited component, the whole world can get fucked up. I mean, really, and people's lives can get ruined. People can be killed. It happens so often. It would nauseate you. Honestly, I think if we got down into the statistics, at least insofar as I'm aware of them, but I wanted to step, let's step back just for a minute because you talked about the, the idea that like we're funneling people into prisons and that's true. And I think to the lay person out there, they're thinking somebody gets sentenced for some criminal conviction. They're obviously getting sentenced to whatever the judge thought was fair and that's just our, our system of justice, deal with it. And fine, we can accept that premise for the purposes of today. But then once you're in jail, what does that mean? You're stripped of all human dignity? No, I don't think anybody would agree with that. Does it mean you have no rights whatsoever? Fine, we'll give you some dignity. I mean, we'll give you clothes to wear and food to eat, but you have no rights. No, that's not true either. The United States Supreme Court has held that you do have constitutional rights still, even though you can be a convicted prisoner. Um, and for purposes of today's discussion, I'm just I'm putting people into two buckets, even though it's more nuanced. If you've been arrested and accused of something, but not yet convicted, you're going to likely be sent to a jail, right? So you're just accused, but not convicted. If you've been convicted of something and sent off for more than a year, you're going to find yourself in prison. And it might seem like a meaningless distinction, but the law does distinguish. Because if you're in a prison setting and a conviction you're talking about excessive punishment basically under the eighth amendment and whether or not it violates that notion. Whereas if you're just an arrestee only accused of something, but not yet convicted, maybe being held without bond, or maybe you can't afford your bond, you still have the same substantive rights. They basically operate the same way, but it comes from a different origin, which is the 14th amendment. Um, but they do act in the same way. And to John's point earlier, um, well, I think you were basically hinting at this, which is once you're behind bars, do people even care? And that's a really hard thing for lawyers who want to take these cases. Because how do you make jurors care? Forget what the law says. I could I could tell a juror all day that the law says a person convicted of murder or rape or whatever, a bank armed robbery, um, they have these constitutional rights. But but is that juror actually going to listen and fairly apply the law uh, in the event that they find out what they're convicted for? I, John and I, maybe this is a good starting point. He's, he's since passed away unrelated to the case, which is very tragic. But um, one of the first cases we handled together, Alberto Ruiz, he was in there serving consecutive multi-decade prison sentences and for all intents and purposes was going to die 
a prisoner and in fact did, but far too young. But his, his case actually started with excessive force outside the prison walls, but then he got in there and then he wasn't really getting access to mail, he felt like in a timely fashion or at all. It wasn't really getting access to resources like the law library. So there's a whole myriad of things that can happen and really uh, stress people out behind bars, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, like it's, it's, it's tough to think about like, look, like obviously, you know, we could, I remember when we were, you know, when I first was studying criminal law in law school, um, you know, looking at, you know, the idea of, is it, you know, is it punishment? Is it rehabilitation? You know, there's all these varying ideas of what it means to put someone in prison, right? Are you paying back your debt to the society? But what we've learned and what I've, what you kind of see is that once you're convicted, you know, you're down a path that, you know, there really is no turning back and no getting off, right? If you're a convicted felon, you lose your right to vote, you lose the right to have a firearm, you have to label yourself as a, as a convicted felon the rest of your life, you know, it follows you forever, right? And which... You know, I mean, we could have a fundamental philosophical discussion about that, you know, and the problems that that continues to create in the system. But it's kind of like that's the idea. Right. So let's look at just some some numbers. Right. In 2019, the U.S. had incarcerated 2.19 million people. Right. We account for 25 percent of all people incarcerated in the world. Right. Here in the United States. I mean, the, the amount of people that are incarcerated, I think there's 15 states that have a hey, less number of people right then, you know, and it costs roughly $40,000 per person per year to to handle that incarcerated individual. So if, you, if we're doing numbers, if we're talking 2 million people, $40,000 per year, we're talking about billions of dollars spent per year. But where does that money go to, right? The, the money goes to a lot of these situations, these private companies. And what we've learned, and, and, you know, and this is kind of what drives a lot of our litigation, of the decisions that are made for each particular company is driven by money, right? There is what, one of the things we learned when you have a company that runs the entire jail, is there's a quota, right? They have a contract with the county that says, you have to deliver me enough people to fill my jail to 90%. Okay, well, what happens if they're short than that 90%? The county has to pay them money. Think about that for a moment. That's where I talk about when I talk about human capital. The county has to give them criminals, give them bodies to put into jail, or they pay them money. How is that even an appropriate system? And that's when we talk, when, you, when you're privatizing these entities, it's no longer about, you know, the right from wrong. It's like, I need to convict people to put them in jail to pay this contract or me as the county, I'm going to have to put that in some kind of budget. I'm about to take it away from schools. I'm taking it away from other things. And, and, right. and that's a problem. Right? We've seen, I mean, we've, we've literally seen these county commissioner meetings where, the allocation of resources for management of their jail, the medical expenses of arrestees or, or prisoners comes up. I mean, this is not an easy thing for, like I can acknowledge, it's not an easy topic uh, for the politicians to have to vote on appropriately. There's a lot of, I, I'll say, it seems like there's a lot of easy outs to say, well, let's put the money elsewhere. And when you talk about these numbers, not just the, the percentage of population that's in there, but the actual dollar figures we talk about, it's so easy to look at them 
uh, in the abstract and say, holy fuck, that's a lot of money that's being spent on these prisoners. But if you actually break it down, not that whole hell of a lot's being spent per person. And obviously everybody's different and has their own needs. But, you know, a lot of the cases that we see, and we can't take them all, unfortunately, but it's the, it's the man or the woman who gets arrested with a pre-existing health condition, booked, and they're talking to deaf ears at intake, but hey, I have this condition, I need this medication, if I don't get it, ABCD is going to happen, and you know, the nurse or whoever's performing the intake doesn't take appropriate steps to secure that specialist consult, or maybe to get the, you know, how many cases, I've literally lost count of how many times somebody gets arrested, and their spouse is either at the jail or calling the, the jail saying, I have this person's pills, you know, please just at least take them and they don't get them. And then they have some episode or worse, they die. I mean, those, those things happen all the time. So um, I guess what I'm really trying to say is you have those cases, then you've got the people who show up fine, relatively speaking in health, but they deteriorate inside, they get an infection or whatever it is. Um, cancer pops its head up and now they need treatment, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you're just going to say, if somebody's serving a 10-year sentence and four years in, they get diagnosed with stage three cancer, what, they don't get to go see an oncologist? They don't get to have chemotherapy? Um, no, we can't do that. That's basic human dignity. There's constitutional rights at play. But how long does it take for them to have to go get a specialist? I mean, I've seen cases, uh, and I've spoken to people in there, where they have very, in my opinion, obvious, seriously emergent medical conditions, and it might take weeks or sometimes a couple of months for them to actually get seen by an outside specialist. And, you know, God only knows the pain and discomfort they're going through then. I mean, so often the response I hear from people is no matter what the complaint I give medically, at best, they'll give me like an aspirin, you know, at best. And they expect that to cure like, like a rash or something, you know, it's like a ridiculous situation. So, um, so many of these cases, I would say boil down to one thing, which is like mismanagement of human beings needs. And I think the mismanagement is born of this notion that once the human is behind bars, they're not really dignified or entitled to an appropriate response. Just the same way, like if somebody walked into a urgent care off the street presenting with all these different symptoms, the, they would triage that person, find out what that person needs and make the appropriate referrals. They don't get the same treatment. Now, maybe you're sitting at home and you feel like, well, fuck them. They don't deserve the same treatment. But I guarantee if the shoe was on the other foot, you'd want it and you're entitled to it. So this is kind of that disconnect. And I, I think it trickles down into every step of the system, which is like, well, how, are the nurses that are being hired really qualified? You know, you and I had to learn over the years, nurse is kind of an unfair term to use because there's so many different layers in the hierarchy. There are nurses that are they're basically fucking MDs. I mean, right. I mean, not literally, but their wealth of knowledge, experience, and sometimes what the law can enable them to do. And then you've got things down to like CNA, certified nursing assistants, which I think people can refer to as a nurse or licensed practitioner, uh, practical nurses, rather LPNs. But these are lower on the totem pole, not really able to diagnose or whatever. So you've got all these things where it's like <clears throat> most jails are littered with LPNs and CNAs, low ranking nurses, which and, and what's for better or for worse. And why do they do that? Because it's cheaper dollars per hour. It's cheaper. And then, so if you have someone in there, who's maybe not as educated, maybe not as experienced, maybe just doesn't give a fuck also, but he or she uh, doesn't have the tool set, let alone the statutory authority to diagnose and make referrals or whatever. What good is that person to triage someone with a serious condition? And then you, this is the delay, right? This is the, I told them, I told them, I told them, but nothing happens. 
until a situation becomes catastrophic. And so often in these cases, what? They land on our lap when someone's dead, on the verge of death, I mean, and often very avoidable. Um, had had appropriate steps been taken, and I don't, I don't, and I don't think we want to minimize the fact that like it's a tough job, right? Like, not anybody who goes to nursing school wants to go work in a jail, right, and be a, a jail or prison nurse, right? So, so you're you're kind of the way I look at it, you're already getting kind of the low barrel individuals, you know, the bottom of the totem pole of like, you know, we had one case where it was somebody that was fired by the prior. <laughs> Uh, contracted uh, medical private medical facility for the jail, and then with the next one came in when they lost the contract, and another company got it, and they rehired her. You know, yep. rehired her back in, and then she was the one that, you know, we had a client who was having uh, syncopal episodes repeatedly, and she was just like, "Here's some Gatorade, go back to your cell," you know, that kind of thing. And she was an LPN, and ultimately our client was what had the last one that left him in a vegetative state. And, you know, that's what's interesting. We, he was taken outside of jail, you know, in a vegetative state, and they brought him back. They brought him, for, so for, for, he needed to be in ICU, he was on a ventilator. They bring him back to the jail. They hire CNAs to look after him. And there's, there were reports and records where they're like, we don't have the facilities or the capabilities to care for this person. Right? But... Because it costs money to keep him out, they just bring him back to prison. Hope he dies. Because if he dies, there's it's a less it's a wrongful death case now, not an individual who's in a vegetative state, which changes their liability. Because if you know, in a med- yeah, their exposure, right? If it's a med mal scenario, if they if they're unmarried with no kids, get funeral expenses. You know, that's that's essentially- yeah. That, well, that gets maybe to the larger point here, which is like we could probably spend two hours uh, parsing through the different examples of the problems themselves. But I think we could pivot to talk about, like, what are the solutions? The only solution that we can offer as lawyers, right? We're not politicians. I'm not an elected official. I'm not writing any laws. So I'm just dealing with the laws as they are, <clears throat> is to hold the wrongdoers accountable. To me, it's no different than a car accident or any other kind of tort that happens uh, outside the confines of a jail, prison, or other correctional facility. Um, so it's how do you hold them accountable? Well, with legal action. Let's talk about that. I mean, if the government, if it's all government actors or employees of the government who are running a jail, let's say, you could bring every claim in the book on about negligence and medical negligence and failure to supervise, failure to train these people, whatever it is. Um, what's their exposure? 200K on their worst day, you know, because of the cap the, that limits the amount of recovery that people can make against basically the state of Florida or other municipalities like counties and cities. 200K on their worst day. I mean, I, I say this, you know, knowing full well it's a silly thing, but I mean, if Jeff Bezos got arrested in Florida and God forbid something tragic happened behind bars, Jeff Bezos, right? No matter how valid his claim would be, you know, he's capped at 200K just like any anybody living under the overpasses. I mean, it's it's that black and white. So it's like, well, if if that's the government's maximum exposure, how do you incentivize them to change? to hire better people, to train them more regularly, to be more diligent, to be proactive, not reactive. And the answer is, I think you're lying to yourself if you think there is a way, because there isn't, as far as I can tell. And I can't even fathom one, because people generally don't change unless they're forced to. And now you're talking about the government. I mean, I, good luck, you know, good luck. 
Well, I think that's why, you know, you got to get outside of the, the state law negligence claims against any entity. Because some, some states, I think they have absolute immunity, right? They don't even have caps. You just can't sue the government. You know, Florida has extended that and says you get 200K, which, I mean, you could kill somebody, the, the government, that's it. However, obviously, is what we know is that if we can go in the, you know, the federal realm, that civil, you, you turn it into that civil rights case, then you kind of sidestep that immunity to kind of go after them and in, 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 in the context of instead of saying, well, you were the ones like, let's say, for instance, the municipality is the one that selected the uh, medical private medical company to provide service in the jail. Instead of suing them for general negligent selection, you know, you kind of sue them for a 1983 violation saying like, look, you're the government actor. You can't contract your constitutional duty to some other company. And if you pick some company and they're the bad actor and they did all these things and you've got, you know, you, we've got these companies where they're killing people all over the country. I mean, to the point that we had, there, there was a, a case where we had the company, New York, said, you cannot bid on a contract for five years. We deem you to be unfit to provide medical yeah. services because they were killing everyone. And then here they are in Florida working. and That same know, company. Yeah. The same company. And it was, you know, they see all this and they're like, no, no big deal. We'll just, you know why? Because it's cheaper. Or do they even see it? I mean, I know we had evidence that a few people did, but it's like, how how close are are the government, the people within the government who make these decisions, which vendor should we hire and all that? Are they looking? I mean, obviously they're looking at the bids, the proposals from the five or six vendors that bid. But I mean, are they really, really looking deep? Do you really want to invite a, a company with this horrific corporate history of medical negligence everywhere it's left in its wake and you're going to hire them and they do. And it's just like, it's this head scratcher. Fortunately through the years, we've had a few, very few, but isolated examples of like some sheriffs in some counties have basically stood up and said like this particular contract, this vendor cannot come into our jails. We've looked at what they've done and it's horrific, including witness tampering, like after the fact, telling nurses, you know, forget that, change this record, whatever. Um, Yeah. The company was actually convicted in in Wisconsin or charged. Falsifying records. Yeah. In in Wisconsin, you can actually charge a company like a person with a crime and they charge the company with falsifying medical records in a case. And I'm not sure if they were convicted. I think they were, but I know they were at least charged uh, in that particular case. So, I mean, it's. Well, you talked about like getting around negligence claims to get around the caps. And you're right. I mean, to the extent that we can do that, we try to. There's an obvious strategic advantage because constitutional claims are have no cap. They're limitless in terms of the amount you can recover in theory. But of course, right, it's not apples to apples. It's apples to oranges because often, especially in like the medical negligence context. Okay, so <clears throat> if, if what happened is medical negligence, failure to timely diagnose, treat, make referral, whatever. Okay, you got your medical negligence case. Well, that's capped. So is what happened also so egregious that it violates the 8th or 14th Amendment, depending on if they're an arrestee or a prisoner? And how do you make that determination? Well, the term of art, the theory rather, typically is called deliberate indifference. So can you prove that the defendant, the bad actor, was subjectively aware of the person's objectively serious medical need and didn't do shit about it? And you got to see some of these cases where the defendants are winning at summary judgment. where like, all right, I'll let you bring the suit, but it gets thrown out for trial. I mean, egregious, egregious examples because whatever, maybe the court finds oh, it wasn't objectively serious enough. And um, just negligent. Yeah, they were negligent, but right. that's not enough. You know, you need that one step further to show 
they were deliberately indifferent to their medical needs. And it's so tough. It's so tough. And because the defendants in these types of cases know it's so tough, they go out, they hire competent counsel who's got the law on their side and basically the infinite resources or so it feels, uh, and they fight tooth and nail. Yet again, another deterrent to why some really quality plaintiff's lawyers don't even take these cases. And like, that's, again, this is all that butterfly effect, right? If, if the law is unfavorable and the people you're going up against uh, know it and use their limitless resources to defend vigorously, like very sometimes just toxic litigation. Um, and on top of that, you're already dealing with the stigma of representing someone who is in jail or prison and you worry like, what would jurors think, right? And then on top of that, you've got sovereign immunity caps that are likely going to uh, prevent you from getting a, lot, a large recovery on probably your strongest claims. You add all these things into the pot. It's a recipe for a lawyer being like, I feel really bad, but I can't. Yeah. Because, you know, lawyers, we're not, we're not uh, missionaries. Many lawyers are either owning their own law firm or they work for a law firm and we have bottom lines. There's only 24 hours in a day, only so many cases you could take in a year, et cetera. So like these are very legitimate concerns, but often it's to the point where like some lawyers won't ever take these at all period, end of story. And I think that's why, you know, one of the coolest things I'm so proud to ever have been a part of it, you know, even tangentially, but like the Southern District of Florida has a volunteer attorney program. I think it's the coolest fucking thing in the country. I don't know if any other federal district court does it. Northern District of Georgia right here in Atlanta doesn't. And I think, you know, could and should, and many others should too. But basically, they got so many pro se prisoners, people convicted of crimes who don't have lawyers, like something happens behind bars, you're not entitled to counsel for this. You're entitled to have counsel defend you against those criminal charges. But once you're done, they lock you up and throw away the key. You're not entitled to counsel, right? So something egregious happens behind uh, while convicted. It's a constitutional violation or a pretty clear one, but you don't have a lawyer. So you're pro se. You're trying to do all of this yourself, uh, which is a damn near impossible task. So at some point, these prisoners find themselves asking the court, can you find me a lawyer to do this pro bono? In most jurisdictions, how would you ever hear about that? You would never hear about it. Who's What lawyers are perusing the mailboxes of the clerk's office of their local district court? Probably none. But the Southern District of Florida, for reasons I don't know, years ago, they instituted this program where basically when a judge gets a request like that, not every time, but if they get, if it's the right case, they'll refer it to this internal program, the Southern District's Voluntary Attorney Program. And there's like a list of ongoing cases, you can see the dockets and you can email the chambers and say, hey, I'll volunteer to pro bono, represent this one. And that's, I did many of those to start my career. But just think about that. That's what it, that's the present day reality of people with very legitimate, some of them very legitimate, could, could be worth, if they weren't a prisoner, multiple millions of dollars. They can't find an attorney to take their case. They have to beg the court to find one for them. And often those cases end up just sitting on a list with very few people taking them. And, and that's just the reality of, of, of these types of cases. So, you know, for us, we pride ourselves on taking them when we can. But, John, you know this like I did. These cases, this is not like sign it up today. It's closed in six to 12 months. Often you take these cases because of how hard the other side is fighting. I'll see you in three to five years, you know, um, with tons of time, tons of money invested, lots of hurdles you've got to clear along the way. Uh, with no guarantee of victory. So, you know, absolute rights to appeal, right? Yeah. You know, let's not forget about that. In the case we we ended up settling right before trial, 
we had already had two appeals. We filed in the yeah. Southern District. They moved. They transferred us to Middle District. We we took a writ to the eleventh, saying you can't transfer the case. Then right. they moved to dismiss. They denied, and they took an appeal on the motion to dismiss. Yep. You know, and that had to. That's our good old friend, qualified immunity again, yeah. affording these defendants an opportunity to just pause, come back in twelve months or whatever when this appeal is done. And we, you know, and we see that, and so it's so it's like you don't even get, you're not even getting like I don't want to say you you can get offers pre. Uh, appeal, but the majority of the time it's like, oh, well, let's see if you win on summary judgment, and if you don't, then let's just see what happens after the appeals court comes back, and then, oh, here we are right before trial, right? And that's when they all, they'll pony up. I mean, I think in our case, you know, the one, the private entity was offering low five figures, you know, and ended up being, a, you know, a large, um, you know, globally between all defendants, like an eight-figure recovery, you know, and it's... Right. it's it's one of those things that like the amount of docket entries we had in the case, I think we had over 500 in federal court on like a single plaintiff case. So it's not, you know, we were little, everything was litigated to the T, you know, and that the way we took it is said, look, you know what game on, you know, we're going to bear down. And, you know, and a lot of that was Jordan, um, you know, not myself, you know, although I, trust me, I took a nine hour depot of an expert. <laughs> I was going to say you, you were right in the throes of it. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of the, the drafting and, you know, we were up till midnight and, and you know what I mean? That sometimes that's what it takes to say like, look, like, you know, when you're dealing with, it's almost like they have every single advantage that they can have in a case and you have to come overcome every single advantage. And when they do, and they wake up and they're like, oh my God, we're about to go to trial on this. You know, and then that's not to mention, by the way, I've never been a judge, but not to mention a lot of these cases wind up in federal court because there's federal constitutional rights at issue. I mean, you have to imagine I'm surmising from my own perception of things. These judges are fucking sick of these cases. They hate having them clog their docket. And I say that because like any pro se prisoner can file them. Right. So, I mean, they've got to get rid of them. I'm pretty sure the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which sits right up here in Atlanta. I mean, it's got a Florida office and the like, but. I'm pretty sure they have a whole division of staff attorneys who review just 1983 appeals. I'm pretty sure. I'm not certain, but I remember in law school coming out looking for a job, and I remember seeing that. I was like, wait, what is this? And I mean, that just kind of tells you how inundated the courts are with it. Now, does that mean every claim is meritorious? No. And this kind of was, when you were talking, I was sitting here thinking, I was like, I don't want to uh, put out this perception that there's so many thing, terrible things happening. And every time you get a call on one or an opportunity to work it, it's worth your time because the realities of being a prisoner, especially serving a long stretch is you're bored to death, you know, no pun intended. And you're, you're looking for fights to pick. Maybe you're just, you know, you like to be in litigation. It gives you a sense of purpose There's win loss. This is kind of like this win loss competitive element to it. Maybe you get some money on your books, maybe not, but like, you know, fuck the, fuck the man, so to speak. So I'm just going to, I'm going to make them have to work. There's a lot of that goes on too. So I don't, I don't want to suggest that it's all meritorious. Some of it is utterly frivolous. So you gotta, you gotta screen through that as best you can. But I do think that like, if you're a lawyer out there, I don't care if you've been practicing 20 years, I really mean this. If you don't have a lot of trial experience and you want some, or you don't have virtually any uh, federal experience and you want some, and I mean, real experience, not like, I mean, you know, Look, Corporation A sues Corporation B and 18 months of exchanging paperwork discovery is had. 
that's litigation technically, but I'm talking about the type that's geared towards trying a case or handling things of constitutional import. These are the cases you should take and reach out to your local bar organization. If you're licensed in the Southern district of Florida, get on that email listserv. I mean, pick up one or two of these cases and, and see how it suits you. And John refresh me. I think the Southern district used to, I don't know if they still did. They used to offer on a limited basis to reimburse some of your expenses to, to make sure you can at least do it the right way. You can file. um, Well, well, two things. One is if you are successful, we had this issue come up. uh, We're entitled to attorney's fees, right? In a 1983 claim, you're entitled to attorney's fees. We had this issue be brought up and we jumped in. They said, Oh, they're pro bono. They can't ask for attorney's fees. The judge was like, Oh no, if they win, they're entitled to it. So if you win, you will get paid attorney's fees. And then they do have a program within that you just submit your costs. Um, I think it's to a certain extent and they will reimburse your costs to be, to be extended. I know that we've done, we did that in the Alberta Ruiz trial, um, you know, and, and it was a tough case. And honestly, we had, I think the Northern, I know the Northern district of Florida does it as well because I get emails on that on, on pro bono opportunities um, to, to be had. But, yeah, Jordan, and us, yeah, to, to do that, we wanted to get trial experience, so we took these pro bono cases, and, and we tried the case, and it was a case where our client carjacked people on video, was like running people over, I don't want to say running over, but they were, he was like smashing when they were trying to get him. Pinballing out. into them, I think is a fair description. And later when he was arrested, they beat the shit out of him, broke his jaw, he had to have emergency surgery, and what's interesting is he took the car, he sold it to a fence, and had cash, like 7500 bucks. And he said the police stole the money. The two officers came in and they were tasing him. And his chain that his father gave him. Where's the money? Where's the money? And they kept tasing him and, and it was never recovered. You know, there was in his police money, all the money that he just sold the stolen car for was never recovered. And that, you know, so he was like, look, these cops came in, stole my money, beat the shit out of me, broke my jaw and he had to have emergency surgery. Yeah. And Alberto, by the way, you know, may he rest in peace. You want to talk about somebody who's like one of the most impressive people who obviously made bad mistakes along the way in his life. And like, I'm not, he wouldn't excuse his own misconduct and I'm not either, but I mean, he's still the human being that we spent a lot of time with. This guy was fucking brilliant in his own right. I mean, he litigated that case pro se by himself on his own behalf for a long time before we ever got involved. And he did it really well. And you'll find that often that sometimes you can pick up a case further downstream, closer to trial. So you don't have to like take it from inception. You could take it, let's say the judge denied summary judgment for the defendant. So, you know, there's a trial date coming. You could jump into those cases and you'll find that a lot of the clients, the people that become your clients, uh, were really able to paper that file well and, and get you in a, in a good position. But I actually was just thinking, you're talking about Alberto. And I was thinking when uh, my former partner and I first partnered up, we took one of these cases, you know, inside prison, medical negligence, dealt with the hernia that had ruptured. I mean, the damages were serious. The the nature of the claim was serious and the client was, this guy was fucking brilliant. I mean, <clears throat> he had documented everything. He was a prisoner. So there was some consideration of, did you exhaust all your administrative remedies by like internal grievances before, you know, sometimes the lawsuits, then you can't even file a lawsuit if you didn't do that. This guy had done everything. If there was a law, a legal requirement, I mean, he knew more than about the law than we did at that point in my career. There's no question in my mind. And he had documented everything. So we get like bankers boxes finally sent to us of all these handwritten notes Xerox copies, essentially, of all his medical grievances. This was like the greatest case um, or so I thought. But there was like 13 defendants or some obscene amount. Um, and the corporate defendant was Wexford. And I'll never forget the uh, 
the defense attorney comes down from, I think, the Fort Myers area to our little office, our little Regis office in Brickell to finally depose our client because he had gotten released uh, since we, we took on the case. And we're going through depot, we're going through depot, and the lawyer's just sitting there super casually, and then bang, he just starts knocking it out of the park because he knew there was no why did you sue nurse? I'm making this up, but nurse Jones. And the client would sit there. This client knew everything, every detail about his case, his care, everything. And he's sitting there and he's just like, I don't know. Probably because she looked at me wrong in the hallway. Like you start to pick up on like no matter how brilliant, no matter how well he did it, he had sued far too many people. He was frustrated with the process, sued everybody. And we ended up having to basically settle with two two or three defendants, but let out like 11 because it was, there was no merit there. Uh, not, not under the law for how high the legal standard was. So you got to be careful. You live and learn, but I think these are really good learning opportunities. And I don't mean at the expense of a client, you still do good work for them. You're still helping them. And um, you know, at the end of the day, if they have to go to trial, <laughs> John, I'll let you talk about this a little bit, but if you have to go to trial and you're a pro se defendant and the court gives you an opportunity to have pro bono counsel, Odds are, I don't care who the fuck that lawyer is, you should probably take that lawyer. Because if you go to trial as a prisoner, pro se, juries will pick up on that very quickly. Probably won't even take them all but 15 minutes. And things typically don't end your fashion, right? Remember we got fired, right? We were in court, ready to start trial. We got fired by that guy? Yeah, the morning of trial, we got fired. Um, We're in front of Judge Willie D down here in uh, Broward County Federal Court, uh, Broward Division. And we had a care. Eric, what was his name? Was it? Oh, man. I can't remember. But basically, it was a great case because here was the case, right? Guy's at a nightclub. They Something happens. They tell him to leave. He's like, I'm not going to leave. There's like an off-duty cop or maybe hired a security. Says, look, you got to leave. He's like, I'm not going to leave. Like, I can stand out here. And he goes, okay, well, if you don't leave, I'm just going to tase you. And he's like, I'm not going to leave. And the cop pulled out his taser and just tased him, right? And what a a taser is, a taser is not a, like a compliance device. Taser is like a non-lethal weapon alternative to like using a gun, you know, to, to effectuate an arrest. He just said, look, if you don't, that's like saying, if you don't being an asshole, I'm going to shoot you in the leg. Like cops can't do that. So that was the case. And we're like, look, and he was like, well, I want to go after the bouncer and the security. And I was like, listen, stop. Do you want to win? Or do you want to like go around and just like pray in federal court, you know? And so we finally talked him down and, and we said, look, he had this thing where he would sing like Bougie Bonton, you know. And he was a very boisterous. And he used to lie. He liked to be the loudest voice in the room. And he would he did like YouTube videos and shit. We're like, look, don't do any of that shit tomorrow at court. Sure enough, we walk in and he just starts doing it immediately. In the middle of federal district court, federal starts court singing all these start, songs, start, yeah, singing, slurs. using slurs, derogatory terms. And they had a marshal assigned to follow him around the courtroom. I mean, that, yeah, that's that's, that's that's your first sign. Things are not going well. So when a federal <laughs> following your client, so we're in there prepared, and he's like starts fighting with us about how he wants to dictate what's happening. We're like, look, you're that's not like like let's look at this logically. You can't tase people due to compliance. That's what we're gonna do. That's all. That's all you need to do. You're gonna win. And he like and you pissed off, and then the judge was like, they had a discussion. Like, I'm not happy, and the judge was like, well, the the best thing you the benefit of is you don't have to have Mr. Redavid and Mr. Fisher be your lawyers. You know, Jordan had done pro bono cases in front of Judge Willie D before. So, like, he knew Jordan. And he said, you can do make the decision yourself and you can represent yourself. You don't have to have them as lawyers. You just have to make that decision. And he was finally like, yeah, I don't want them to be my lawyers. And he's like, all right, well, that's it. So I'm going to go ahead and discharge you, Mr. Fisher, Mr. David. Have a great rest of the day. This is in the middle of court with the with the prospective jury 
20 feet away behind the door, ready to come out to start. And so we get discharged morning of trial and we're like, all right, cool. We walk out defense attorney runs. I was like, Hey, listen, just want to let you guys know, like we got your back. If anything ever happens, you know, like bar complaints and come stuff. to find out he got a zero and he did a six hour cross examination of the cop pro se. It was just like a shit show. And you know, well, it was a loss. It was a, it was a lose, 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 lose. Okay. So it's, I think the judge did the right thing and I'm grateful that he did. That would have been a miserable trial. Right. But at the end of the day, it's a loss for the client because he loses counsel. And I think that the trial went sideways and he did have a very legitimate case that we probably could have won even nominal damages. So he loses. It's a loss to us because we put in all that time and energy for months preparing, show up ready to try a case. And by the way, get some real trial experience. Now we're shit can tossed off the case. It's a loss for defense counsel who finally, after going against a, a, pretty difficult to manage pro se plaintiff has counsel who's working with them, preparing with them, doing exhibits, whatever. Now they've got to go up against him during trial with objections, argument, you name it. And the court and the staff, not just the judge, but the staff having to deal with someone who's got pro se. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody loses in that scenario. And that was, that was the only time that ever happened, but you that's know, definitely a memorable one. I, just, I think of, you know, this is kind of off topic, Ben. I just think about how I used to think federal court was so intimidating, right? If you yeah. try to case in federal court or even Ben, if you go to the, they got like a, you know, 28 foot bench. It's like <laughs> this far along. The judge is like 15 feet away from the clerk. Who's like 15 feet away from the jury box. And I used to think it was so intimidating, you know, and now I don't, same. I, don't know, I've tried I think anybody who's being honest with themselves cases. feels the same. Jordan had me come and do a, we had a federal criminal case it was a uh, immigration case where the guy basically failed. Like a re-entry. Yeah, he left gonna, he got deported and re-entered illegally. He was going to change his name and then stayed here for like another 30 years, right? Paid his taxes, didn't do anything wrong, but we were defending the criminal case. And I'll never forget this moment. I was like, Jordan, I was like, I mean, it's federal court. I've never tried a case. He's like, come on, you'll be fine. You just do opening statement, do the, you know, tell them what you're going to hear, tell them what you're not going to hear. I was like, oh, that works in federal court too? So we get in there, and I'll never forget. So the state is doing their opening statement, and I don't know. If we've Please, the United States of America. Oh, sorry, not the state. The United States of America. This woman is doing her opening statement, and I don't know if we told the story on yet on the on the podcast, but she is up there giving her opening statement. And Jordan, I think either he objected. He was actually objecting for me. I, I was so not inexperienced, but like. I don't want to even say terrified, but you know, I was intimidated, right? Like it's in federal court. It's a big deal, you know, senior judge and ended up going sidebar because she kept getting sustained and not listening to the judges sustaining the objection. And finally he got called up and said like, Oh, are those your notes, ma'am? And you know, she said yes. And like snatched it from her and said, that's it. You're, you're keep violating this. You're not going to read, finish your opening statement. If you say one more word, get objected to, you're going to, you're done speaking the rest of the trial. This is like a 20 year AUSA. Right. So, so I get up there to do opening statement and I say, and, and so one of the things that we, we didn't have any affirmative defenses cause we got brought in late was essentially he had, I think he had a, a U.S. public defender first and then kind of hired us as private. We didn't plead like reliance, good faith reliance, good faith on, reliance counsel. on like counsel for like when he got his new, um, his new name and, and got, and got a green card approval. But what we were saying to do is like, look, there's a knowledge component. So therefore, since he relied, worked with a lawyer, like he didn't have the knowledge that he was violating the law. That was it. The judge ended up sustaining the objection and they had a motion for mistrial. They're like, we have a motion. And then I, she told me not to say it. And then we did it. I did it again. And I've never felt like, 
<laughs> not purposefully. Let they, that let yeah, that go like, clear. It's yeah, just I'm you're up in the middle of a huge federal courtroom. You're nervous. You, things come out of your mouth. Oh, right out line by line, my opening statement I have outlined, so it tends to be more fluid. And I re-stepped on what I would call a landmine, and I felt heat on my left side of my face. Like, I felt it, right? And it was the judge who had snapped up from, like, reading something to, like, knew exactly what I said, snapped up, and I was like, oh, my God, how do I get out of this? Like, what am I supposed to do? And so I just stopped talking about that point and, like, just moved on to something else. And then I remember afterwards, she was, like, chastising Mr. Fisher, why would you do this? And Jordan came to my defense, was like, I'm sorry, Judge, that was me. I told him to bring it up. That's, you know, my fault kind of fell on the sword a little bit, which was nice. So it made it look like it was a team collaborative effort to do something wrong rather than just me as, as being individualized. So, it, you know. No, it, but, uh, but I mean, think about that. We had that whole experience. You're just talking about opening statement, but we went soup to nuts. They were flying in federal agents, FBI agents from Boston, Boston yeah. everywhere. We had that whole case, soup to nuts, through verdict. Um, as really young lawyers. And I mean, I'm telling you, look, I, there are pros and cons to state and federal court. We've talked about it a little bit. It's a topic for another day. I'm a little bit one of those outliers because of how much I value expedience getting to trial, probably because I was a PD used to drop in speedy trial demands and getting our day in court. I value expedience and, and the intelligence of the bench enough in federal court. I tend to don't, I don't mind if we're in federal court as much, but look, if you don't have experience, you got to get you got to get that experience. You're not going to get it sitting in some law firm, hoping one day the partner calls you down. Do it pro bono to start or whatever. I mean, and even if look, even if you run a law firm or you're a solo practitioner and you're thinking about dollars and cents, which is always top of mind, you got to keep the lights on. You got to put food on the table. Just think about this for a minute. Uh, if you have one of these medical negligence type cases or like uh, mismanagement of a prison facility cases where there's a private corporation that has contracted to do all of it or just some of it like medical services. Think about this, work backwards. <clears throat> yes, the law's against you. It's going to be a long, hard fight, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, these are companies. And the only way they get new contracts or renewals is if they bid to a government and get approved by that government. Those companies don't want adverse judgments in a public record against them. They don't want a jury verdict for $8 million against them, or even $800,000 or $80,000 in some federal district court, because the next time they bid on their contract, we've seen this, almost always there's a question of list all the lawsuits you've been a part of over the past, let's say five years, and what are the results of those? Well, if they get to list a bunch of lawsuits and just settled, the government really never knows whatever, it could have been nominal money. But if they have to list, went to trial and lost, that's a huge red flag probably for the government, and that's not something these companies want. So keep that in the back of your mind, knowing that they may say this and that, but at the end of the day, they're really scared of going to trial. In the right case, they're really scared of going to trial, and that's going to lend itself to a good, a good settlement offer typically, which is going to benefit your client. It's going to benefit you, and you get all that experience along the way. And it's an underserved market. I, if, if you told me about a case, this, this car accident that resulted in serious or catastrophic injuries, it wouldn't take me all but 10 seconds to list off probably 10 different attorneys. And if you gave me a day, I'd probably give you 10,000 who'd be willing to take that case. Same thing for a slip and fall and even an ordinary out of jail medical, medical negligence case. You give me the same facts, but you tell me he or she was an inmate at whatever correctional facility. You might give me 10 days. I couldn't find you a single lawyer that wants the case that may tell you a lot of things, but what it tells me is that's an underserved market. It's a niche and you can do some really good, for the people that you represent, you could do good for the courts. You don't have to deal with the pro se litigants. 
you meet some pretty competent and capable counsel. So you get to sharpen your skills. And along the way, you can make some pretty big money. You really can, because there's some big recoveries to be had because of how egregious the things are that happen. Things that happen in jails and prisons would almost never happen in a hospital or urgent care setting. They just wouldn't. Mm-hmm. It just happens that way. But the damages can be immense. So that's just my food for thought if you're out there listening. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like reliving the days when you were a public defender defending against the government, you know, to it's like the Yeah. It's like the inverse of that. You're still fighting against the man this this and we say the industrial prison complex because it is a money making machine, right? I mean, what is it? It's the Thirteenth Amendment that says that slavery has been abolished, but for in the sense of incarceration, then it's okay. And there's, I think there's, Justin. How many states is there that there, there is states that do not pay? Um, yeah. So it, it's uh, eight states. Um, I have it here. Oh, there it is. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. So, there's eight states currently that do not pay for prison labor: Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Texas. And I would say, well, what's all things that that those states have in common? But I think that everyone can read between the lines on that one. But you know, up until what was it like? You know, in the 1970s, there these these individuals that are incarcerated were doing work for private companies for free. You know, there was, I think it was in Mississippi where you could rent out, you know, like, uh, you know, inmates to come and work on your job site. Well, yeah, you saw that. I mean, I know it's, it's fiction, but I mean, it's based on reality on some level. What was that in Shawshank? Remember the warden was taking basically all the prisoners and taking them out, doing all these projects, build bridges, whatever. And he was running out the local contractors because he didn't have to pay for his labor. So, yeah, I mean, there's some there's some overstepping and egregious misconduct at every level. That's right. definitely so, 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 so there there's some fundamental problems in the system, period. I don't care. There's no real defending them and saying it shouldn't be OK. But but even but let's not think that they're getting paid because when they do get paid, it ranges between 14 cents an hour and two dollars. Right. And I don't even know if they can say I'm not going to work. I think you have to. I don't know either. I'm sure every jurisdiction Justin, might. Yeah, so part. it's interesting. Uh, according to last week tonight, where I got some of this information from, um, you can actually be punished. Like they'll put you in consolidated confinement if you do not work. And these are states that don't pay you. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. that you know, and so that's you know, that's why you know this is some of the. I think the the most necessary work as a lawyer is to protect because it's like if you don't protect, like the 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 people that need your protection, right? If we say, well, it's just okay for them, you know, it's almost like that could potentially start creeping into the rest of us, right? Like if we don't defend the rights of inmates or the rights of prisoners, then what's to say that that or the rights of the accused, then what's to say that everyday person can't be accused of something and then you you forfeit your rights? I mean, that's just, you know, we hear about innocent until proven guilty, but that's not true. Not at least not in the court of public opinion. It's guilty until proven innocent, or it's guilty until I just think. Well, you know, it, I mean, to some level, though, even once found guilty, you're still a human fucking being in this country. So there has to be a limited, which we say it's a bridge too far. Whether it's punitive in nature, work related in nature, you know, denial to access to adequate healthcare in nature. I mean, nobody's saying put these people up at the four seasons. We're just saying, I'm telling you right now, if you take these cases, you know, a lot of this stuff is 
uh, private, you know, highly sensitive, protected medical information. So it doesn't just come to light in the newspaper. But I mean, if you look not too far, I mean, this really does feel like a last week tonight episode. John Oliver would be the perfect conduit to get this message out. But I mean, there's some atrocities going on. Atrocities, absolutely disgusting behavior that I can't imagine any human being, uh, any American citizen would look at and, and at favorably or, or discount. Uh, you'd, you'd probably throw up about it and throw your hand, hands in the air. So if you see these things going on or you know they're going on, then step up to the plate, especially if you're a lawyer, if you can do something. And I think that's that's kind of my call to action for everybody out there, which is if you're a lawyer or want a person aspiring to be one, like a law student, don't just cast these cases away. As, well, I'm not interested in that. Or he or she was convicted of something, so I can't be. Listen, a lot of terrible things are happening out there. And if you're able to step up to the plate and help, you're not going to just help that person and make you feel better. I'm talking about, I mean, I'm, I, we run a law firm too. There's money to be made too. So if that's a consideration for you, it's not exactly like you have to do it the pro bono route. There are other ways too. Yeah, but the, I mean, I don't know. Alberto Ruiz was a case. We, we took the trial and we lost. We got zero, right? Yeah, sure did. Um, but the jury deliberated over two days. And to me, you know. I think we just asked for too, too much money. We did. That's all. You know, that was me as a young lawyer. I asked for $1.5 million for the guy, you know, and that's. Who's going to die in prison. So it's kind of like. But, you know, but we but, held him out. The wind was holding him out for seven hours and seeing yeah, that was, whatever it was. But even he, like he didn't even want us to come in the case because he worked so hard. But then afterwards, we developed like this bond and relationship that, you know, I used to go and, and see him and we would talk to him. And, you know, years for years after. And by the way, that's even after <laughs> we used to the relationship was so tight. We just pick up the phone for no reason. You know, he'd send he'd send letters sometimes just to catch up. I was, I was busy for a period of time and I couldn't talk to him for a while. He filed a bar complaint against me. Now I know that's like, Oh, that's crazy. And it, and it was, and the bar did the right thing and dis, <laughs> dismissed it like at the first instance. And then I talked to him about it and he was just explaining, he's just, he's just a person. He's a human being. And he missed us. We're like his only outlet to the world. Everybody else had died or forgotten about him for the most part. And he was, he missed us. You know, So I remember speaking when it was right after I moved, we opened the Atlanta office. I was in the conference room talking to him and I hung up and one of our associates was like, isn't that the guy that filed the bar complaint? Why are you chumming it up with him for 20 minutes about God? And I said, look, this is, this is all the guy's got. I mean, I can't hold a grudge against the guy. He was, he was brilliant. He was easy to work with when it mattered. We went to the mat for him and that's, that's the best we could do. Yeah. It always reminds me of, um, I'm going to mess up the quote. What is it? Uh, in Spider-Man, Dr. Ock, when he says at the end, when he's got to sink the thing into the lake, like if you have uh, wisdom, it has to be shared with the world or some... some never seen a Marvel movie, proud to never say. Seen, it's not a Marvel movie. This was, Whatever this was that is. Movie. Superheroes? Oh, what does he say? Justin's going to... We have Justin here. He's going to do a quick Google search. You're saying it's uh, taking like, taking the sun back? No, it's like... Lake? Remember when he had the, the, the thing that he had to sink in the river and he was like... The, when the, he was like the benefit of having wisdom is you have to like a responsibility to share it with the world. The, the, we're not going to find it. I'm not worried about okay. The point I'm trying to make is that, you know, when you... As lawyers, I feel like if you have an opportunity to help people like this, you know, it's almost like... It, you know, some people think, you know, we've got to do pro bono hours, all that. But this is more than that. I mean, these are individuals that have and and either they failed themselves the system has failed them and now they're in this 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 cog in this wheel this this multi-billion dollar grind to to make money and that these individuals have wronged them and we i think we as lawyers have a responsibility to hold them accountable because when you're in a prison facility or even a pre-trial detainee 
you have no ability to do anything for yourself. You can't say, I want to go to the doctor. You can't say, you know, you can file grievances, but good luck. You know, and, and a lot of times what we've seen is that to take someone to an outside facility costs money. There was actually um, communications that showed and said that it was almost like a bonus program, that if they did not have to go to an outside medical facility, there would be bonuses given to medical professionals. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's that's and all the while a human being is suffering with more than one, you know, so I'm like, hey, and look, I'm not saying that people don't want to make money and, you know, in those kind of situations. But if, if that's what you're looking at is saying, like, how can I give these people the bare minimum care and just try to save money? If, if that's your total focus, then I mean, you know, that then. then you know, it kind of is a disservice to even being a medical professional because I think they take the Hippocratic Oath and responsibility for these people. And, and at the end of the day, they are still people. They do have constitutional rights. And because they can't go get their own medical care, they have a responsibility to make sure they do it. Well, I'm, a, they don't, so. I'm glad we did this. It's nice to be back doing this. Uh, the summer break was also nice, but I'm really looking forward to picking up where we left off and putting out some continuing content on a weekly basis. So, I appreciate you setting this up, Justin. Thank you, John. Appreciate all the content. Like always, I'm going to go feed my two little uh, two little mini-me's out there because it's getting late in the day and long in the tooth, and they're starving. So without further ado, I'm going to check out. All right, sounds good. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for, Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review. And be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter. Or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.